Oh man, so, so blessed to be here. Obviously, about a month ago, I was here just for a couple weeks, but this is where um, it all started for me, really. Uh, I was the youth pastor here, and so it's a little bit um, reminiscent because on Wednesday nights, this is where we'd be in the sanctuary. I think there's several of you guys that were in the youth group at that time, and so it probably brings back some memories as well. Um, but, uh, you know, there's nothing, in, you know, inherently special about a building, but I will say that, uh, man, God has done so much in this building, right? That's why you guys are here. He's spoken to us. And I will say that, man, God has probably spoken to me more in this room than any other place on the planet of the earth. It just has. Just, I just grew up going to this church, and this is, this is uh, what done, God's done in my life. And I've been in Santa Barbara for, like Shani said, since the beginning of that. And that was, uh, this September is four years ago. So it's been a long time, uh, but so honored and privileged to be sharing the Word of God, teaching the Word of God today. Um, this is the stage in which I got ordained, and uh, this is the same pulpit I preached my first sermon to adults on, so um, from the stage. So anyway, just really good to be back. Love you guys. Love Reality Carp. And uh, as usual, the Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon, so let's let them know we love them. Ventura, we love you. We are moving right along in the study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you've been with us, we've been there this summer. And so why don't you open with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Uh, I'll be reading it out of the New American Standard, NASB. But then I'm going to actually read it also, same verses in the New Living Translation, uh, just to give a little bit greater understanding of what Paul is talking about here. So here we go. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. It says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that, you, that as you received from us instruction as how, to, how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects us is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now the New Living Translation, same text. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, to stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will, will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins. As we have solemnly warned you before, God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for where you have us this morning. 
And we thank you for your word. It's not a coincidence that we're studying this text this morning. You're very purposeful. You're all-knowing. You're all-powerful. Nothing's random. And we thank you, Lord, that even though this text this morning was penned by a man, it was authored by God. It's God-breathed. It's God-inspired. It's, edif- uh, it's, it's for teaching, correcting, and, refuf- and training in righteousness. We know your word is living and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And God, we want to hear from you, Lord. We're gathered here this morning because we want to hear from you. So we ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you would have for us. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We want your will to be done, your kingdom come. We ask that you would accomplish all that you want to accomplish this morning. And Father God, we, as this text just clearly puts it, we want to live holy lives. In light of what you did for us on the cross, we want our lives to reflect that. We want to be image bearers. And so Holy Spirit, we receive, God, correction today, knowing that when you correct us, it's your loving kindness that leads us to repentance because you love us, that you correct us. You wouldn't just leave us in our sins, but that you desire intimacy. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd have your way. Reveal to us what, what, this, what this passage says and how it applies to our life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully you've been uh, either here at church following along or uh, as Pastor Britt a few times has told you guys to read the book of 1 Thessalonians in its entirety. If you remember, this is a letter. Paul is writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica, to Christians. Uh, and man, if, if you've read this, if you've been here, you realize that Paul loves this church. He loves these believers. Um, he, he's encouraged by them. He's, he, they're doing it. They're living lives uh, for Christ they're obeying Christ. And really, thus far, it's just been him exhorting them. You know, uh, he wanted to come check on them, but he couldn't. So he sent Timothy. Timothy came back with such a good report. Paul's like, I don't even need to go. You guys are just, you guys are doing it. You're obeying the Lord. You're living life on mission. And uh, it's a pretty unique letter because a lot of Paul's letters are addressing uh, theological doctrine. He's, he's most of the times correcting doctrine. He's not doing that in this letter. It's one of the only letters that he's not doctrinally correcting them in any way. But really what Paul is doing is he's encouraging them in what they're doing. He tells them his heart for them. Um, and he's, he's pretty much telling them, like, you guys are awesome. You guys are awesome. You guys are doing it. You're there. And um, it's a really neat letter to read. And if you haven't done that, because so many times what we do with scripture, uh, it's not necessarily bad, but it can throw you off on the context. It's just take a couple verses here and there, or just open up to a random book and kind of get what you need for the day. But what can be damaging is you're, you're missing the context. You're missing the, the kind of the flavor or the potency of what's happening. Because this is a letter from Paul the Apostle. And then if you know more, like Paul was Saul, and he was a persecutor of the church, but God saved him. So now he's redeemed. He's the Apostle Paul. He's awesome. He's redeemed. He's writing to this church in Thessalonica, and this is the audience, and this is why he's writing it. And if you have the greater picture, and if you actually read it in its entirety, it only take you like 15 minutes or something to read the whole book of First Thessalonians, only five chapters. Man, when I was doing this as I was studying, it did a couple things in me. One, it just kind of 
reinvigorated my love for the Word of God. It's just so good, so relevant, so uh, to the point. It's so rich, it's so powerful. It truly is living and active, and it's what it did for me. And then also what it did was it spurred me on to love Christ the way that these, these believers were. Paul the Apostle saying these things about you, encouraging you that you are loving the Lord. And it really encouraged me that, that I, I too want to love Christ and walk in a manner worthy of his calling just like they are. And obviously that's what the word of God should do. It should not only instruct us how to live, but it should encourage us and spur us on. So if you haven't read it in its entirety, you need to. Um, it'll just be that much more richer as we're studying it on Sunday mornings. But here we go, Paul. Uh, chapter four, verse one. He starts off by finally, you know, finally. And, and what we usually would read that as is kind of an ending to a letter. When someone says finally or, you know, uh, the last thing I want to tell you or one more thing or, or finally, it's, it's wrapping up. But if you notice, Paul is like 60% done with his letter. He, he, he's, he's ending of chapter three. There's two more chapters left. He's not really finishing. Paul is like the typical preacher at heart. Right? All of us preachers just go, hey, my last point, or I'm almost done, or never true. Never, either it's not your last point, or that wasn't short, or your time that you think you have that wasn't the same time that I was in the seat sitting. Um, Pastor Britt is famous for this. Right? Pastor Britt, always going, I have these amazing points, one more point, five more minutes, never really true. I think it has something to do maybe with the beard or something. I'm not sure. Just kind of that laid back. You'll be fine. It's good. We're almost done. Um, might have to do something with the beard. Not sure. Anyway, we love Brit. But uh, it's, you know, all of us do it. And Paul's kind of more or less doing that right here. If you're reading this letter, you'd be like, wow, okay, Paul. We're, we're doing pretty good. You're not correcting us. This isn't a super bad letter. We're actually just encouraged. And then we see this finally. And he's got a lot more to say, actually. And it's all good. But he's got a lot more to say. But in these first two verses, this is what Paul's doing. First two verses, first, uh, chapter four, Paul is reminding these believers that they know God's word and what it says. That they've already learned it, what pleases God. They've already learned what it means to walk and live a life as a believer. And he's reminding them of this fact. See, these Christians, like many of us, are not ignorant or unaware of what God's word says. Sometimes we wish we didn't know what it said, right? Sometimes we wish it didn't say what it said because we want to do something. But like these Christians, many of us that have been Christians for maybe not even very long, but if you have specifically for a long time, you know the word of God. I know the word of God. I'm not, we might not be exhaustive scholars and seminary students and we're able to combat every argument, but we know what it means to be a believer. We know why Jesus died on the cross. We know how we ought to live. We know why, we know God's word to some extent. And if that wasn't enough, we have the Holy Spirit that's our teacher and our counselor that comes alongside and reminds us of the word. But we know the word as believers, for the most part. And what Paul is saying to these Christians in Thessalonica is just that. He's saying, we've taught this to you. You know the word. You know how you're supposed to walk. And the beauty of knowing God's word or, or having God's word is that God's word is so clear. It's really clear, actually. We complicate it. We have a great time doing that. We spend hours and hours and books and books complicating the word of God. It's actually really not. It's very clear. It's exhaustive on what our lives are to look like once we're saved. 
It, it really is. If you actually pick it up and read it, that's, that's kind of our problem sometimes. We just don't read it. We just don't know it. But if we actually pick it up and read it, we'll, we'll learn that God's word is clear and it's exhaustive. And in Paul's language to this church in Thess- Thessalonica, he says, you have received it. You have been taught. You know God's commandments. It's all past tense. And his point there is not only that that they know the word of God, but they're actually, for the most part, walking and obeying the truth in it. See, much of the first three chapters of this letter is explaining and exhorting them in this. But Paul says, church, you need to keep going. You can't give up. Don't become stagnant or think that you've reached it. Yes, you know the word. Yes, you've read that before. Yes, you've studied that book before. And yes, for the most part, you're obeying it. In a lot of ways, Paul's speaking to a lot of us, that we fall into that category. We've been saved for a little while. We get into a rhythm. We've been going to church Sunday after Sunday. We've done a Bible study. We've done a home group. Um, we've, done, we've read our own devotionals. We're good. Or we might think in some areas that we are good. We, we We've already asked the hard questions. Oh, yes, I heard that sermon. I've already done that application. I've already repented of that. And we, and we can get into a dangerous spot, actually, as believers, when we feel like we know the word and we feel like we're doing okay. We, we can get into a dangerous spot. And what Paul is saying to those of us that fall into that category is that there's still so much more. See, what Paul is doing is he's saying, he uses, this is his verbiage, I request you, I urge you to excel still more. And in one translation, he says to encourage you to do so even more what you're doing. Paul is calling them to know God more. Paul is calling them to continue to pursue and be like Christ in all they do. This is uh, Paul's call to holiness is what it is. Christians, you know the word of God, you know what you're to do and not to do for the most part. And in a lot of ways, you're doing great at it, but don't settle. Don't become stagnant. There's still so much more that God has in store. What's neat is that Paul was speaking from personal experience. He had written this to the church at Philippi in the book of Philippians. He had written to the believers there, a similar thing, speaking of himself. Philippians 3, 13 and 14 says, this is Paul speaking, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, Paul, even Paul the apostle, no, he wasn't done. He hadn't reached it. He hadn't come to a place of spiritual height and just been like, I'm good. I've read that. I've done that. I'm here. Paul was like, no, it's a continued process of growth to become more like Christ. And we need to do it more. We need to excel more in that. And that's how he starts the fourth chapter. And in verses three through five, he comes to kind of the meat of what he's talking about. He brings it home. He gives them a little bit of application or subject matter to work on. Uh, Verses three through five says this. You can read yourself. He says, after that kind of initial intro, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Paul says we need to excel more as believers. And the first thing he brings up is this incredible statement that says, for this is God's will. Doesn't get any more clearer than that. I think it's one of, if not the clearest places in scripture that tells us, tells us what God's will is for us. Because we've all asked that question, right? We've all came up to the prayer team at one time or another. We've all been, in, you know, kind of besides ourselves. What is life about? What is the will of God? What is God's will for me in this part of my life and that part of my life? And even though those aren't bad questions, right? It's, it's right and good to ask God, like, what decision should I make here? And, uh, you know, should I move? Should I take this job? Like, all that stuff is wonderful. God wants to hear that. God wants to speak to you. He has plans for you, and he has a will for those things. But when I was doing youth ministry for years, if I just had, like, a dime for how many people came up to the prayer team and said, I just want to know God's will for my life. And for a lot of the times, it would, like, they were already worrying about who they were marrying. Already wondering, already asking, and I'm like, hey, there's a lot more to life to live. Don't, please don't worry about that. But what I would tell everyone, and, and you know, what I would always say is, if you want to know God's will, it's right here. Have you heard about it? His word. And his will is his word, and his word is, is his will. So it's an easy way to remember, because it is. This is God's will for our life. His plans, his purposes, his instructions, what he desires for us. All his promises are here. God's will is right here. And so first and foremost, when someone would ever ask about like, what God, what's God? I don't even know God's will for my life. Please read it. Please read it. You get lost in it. It's so, it's so wonderful how, how much he has in store for you. But obviously, like I said, there's more to that. But what Paul is saying here, for this is God's will. He says, God's will, it's very clear, it's our sanctification. It's our sanctification. Some of us not, might not know what sanctification is, so I'll just kind of run through a definition of it. Sanctification is just a theological term for a process to become more like Christ. Or, if you want to have a, a greater definition, it's sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. See, sanctification involves increasing in the likeness of God in our thoughts as well as our words and our deeds. Important thing to note is it's a progressive work over the course of our life. But there is a clear beginning and there is actually a clear end. The clear beginning is when we are saved, when we are regenerated. There's a term that happens when you're saved, only God can do it, but you're justified. It's called justification. That you are made righteous, that you have a legal standing now before God. And we're, we're justified. There, justification happens at the time that we're saved, that we give our lives to the Lord. And the moment that we're saved, sanctification begins. Regardless of where you're at, what your life's like. You might have just made the decision, but your life's not any different in the moment. It happens to a lot of us. Or you might be saved and there's radical testimonies in this room of God just completely changed who you are in many ways at that moment. Your sanctification just a little quicker. It's a little quicker. But at the same time, you could say that we as believers, once we're saved, are works in progress. 
That would be one way to put it. We're not done yet, but we're continuing to become more like Christ. Or we should be. We should be on an upward trajectory, right? There might be some bumps along the way, and there might be some victories and and some, some losses. But at the same time, sanctification has a definite beginning when you're saved. It increases throughout life. But there is a completion. It's at death. It's at death. When we, be, when we leave these mortal bodies and we join our Lord Jesus in heaven, heaven's perfect. It's without sin. No longer do we have to deal with the process of sanctification. Now there's glorification. We get glorified bodies hanging out with Jesus free from sin. Amen? That's something we can look forward to. But it's, there's a distinction. Justification is when you're saved. Sanctification is right now. All of us breathing right here that are, that are believers. But then one day it will end and we will be glorified with the Lord. And that is something very much to be looking forward to. But what's important to note is our role. Our role in sanctification. Justification only God can do. But there's a, there's a mutual role that happens with sanctification. Uh, one author said it this way. The role we play in sanctification is both a passive one in which we depend on God to sanctify us. Right? God's doing the work. God's the only one that can really change us. But we have an active one in which we strive to obey and take steps that will increase our sanctification. Meaning, like surrendering, repenting of sin, uh, trusting in God, uh, denying our sinful nature. There's things that we can do to, to grow in sanctification. But again, God's doing the growth, but there's things that we can do in participation with him. Make sense? Make sense. So sanctification obviously involves our whole being and our whole life, right? Because when we're saved, our life's no longer our own. It's hidden with Christ. So every part of our life is to start becoming like Christ. We're image bearers. We bear the image of Christ. That's what we as Christians are, are, to, are to do. But Paul chose to hone in on one specific area. I mean, he could have talked about uh, a lot of different areas, right? Paul could have chosen uh, forgiveness or mercy or grace or anger, how we should love our neighbor or our speech or our conduct. I mean, he could have chosen a myriad of areas of sanctification. But he specifically and purposely chose a specific part of our sanctification, and that's sexual purity. Paul would say that we are to obtain from sexual immorality, but pursue sexual purity. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason why Paul did this. Again, he could have chosen anything, but he, 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 chose, to cho- he chose to do this. The reason is, is that Thessalonica, those Christians in that city, in that region of the world, lived in a sexually charged culture. The Greco-Roman world at that time uh, is is well known for its rampant sexual promiscuity. Uh, I can read that even in the history books. Uh, Back then, pagan temples regularly doubled as brothels, and sexual practices of all sorts were at least tolerated, if not actively encouraged within the society as a whole. I mean, it was rampant. This is a sexually charged culture, and in many ways, it might be completely packaged differently, but it's almost identical to what we see in society today, in our world, in our culture. 
in the media, uh, on the news, um, in the supermarkets. I mean, I mean, if you look anywhere in popular culture, it seems that almost everything is looked through the lens of sex. I mean, I kind of grew up in it. I'm only 30, so I kind of grew up in that. But for those of you guys that, that, are, that, are, that are older than me, you can, you, you've seen that a lot more. Understand that? But I mean, think about it. You can't go anywhere without being bombarded with the temptation to, uh, of sexual sin. Right? You just want to go get like, the other night, I just needed to get, you know, diapers and coffee for the morning because we were out. I got a two-year-old. Diapers and coffee are like the lifeblood of our house. Um, this is what you need. Uh, but even if you just want to go get a random thing at the store, where do they have you wait? In the checkout stand, and there's just everything. The magazines, right? They're just there. You want to um, go on the internet. Now just pop up ads. Oh, there's ads here. There's ads there. Oh, spam email. Everywhere. You're driving, not in CARP, obviously, but you're driving in any major city. Billboards. You, you, it's hard not to, to, it's hard to drive because you're just looking at the lane. You're trying not to see the billboards. It's everywhere. Right? Pornography is easier today to access than it has ever before in human history. Smartphones. Awesome technology, horrible temptation. You know, I'm not, I'm not an anti-technology guy, I'm just saying. It's so easy. Just like Thessalonica, our society today is sexually charged, and that's just, that's just not hard to see. That's just not hard to see. And in this instance, this, this idea of sexual immorality... Uh, in, in the original language, it's pornea in Greek, or, or pornea in Greek. It's where we get the word pornography, actually. But what it means, this is what the original meaning of this abstaining from sexual immorality means. It means that every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. And when Paul says avoid, uh, that's really too, too weak of a word. What it means in the literal language is to literally cut out or a total removal of. And so when Paul says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, specifically your sexual immorality, he says you need to cut out and totally remove any type of sexual sin. And this is what he means by sexual sin or sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, listen to this, is anything that is done sexually outside of the covenantal marriage relationship between a male and a female. Anything else other than sex inside a covenantal marriage relationship between a male and a female is sexual immorality. So that means adultery, fornication, pornography, anything else other than sex in a covenantal marriage relationship between a man and a woman is sexual immorality. That's what Paul means. That's what the word of God would tell us this morning. And he describes... Those are, the idea of sexual immorality here is the actions, right? The acts of sex uh, that, that are not ascribed by God. But what he does is he actually breaks it down even more. In verse 5, Paul talks about lustful passion. And he changes the words there. And he, and he does it for a reason. See, lust is the mental place in where the impure thoughts start. See, see, all those things that we just talked about, fornication, adultery, etc., are just results or symptoms of what has already transpired in our mind and in our thoughts. 
It's the root of the problem that Paul is getting at. It's not just a don't do this and do that and try to be good. And Paul's like, I want to I get to the heart of the matter, the root of the problem. We, we all know that. If we don't cut out the root of sin, it's going to keep happening in different ways. If we don't cut out the root, if we don't get to the core issue, which is in, the heart, is, is in our hearts and our minds, uh, nothing's going to change. And Paul plays off what Jesus so wonderfully and powerfully said in the Sermon of the Mount when he was talking to the multitudes gathered on the Mount of Beatitudes as he was giving that famous sermon in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 27 through 28, he's speaking to the crowds and he says, Jesus speaking, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Everybody's, everybody's heard that. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When they heard that, it changed everything. No longer was it these actions that I can't do or not. It actually started in my heart and in my mind. And what Jesus said to them there is if you even lust over someone, you've already committed adultery. The the playing field has changed. changed. The, The stakes are much higher. And what happens is that if we don't really grasp that, there's many of us in this room that may think that because we've never acted upon or, or acted on anything that we've thought that we're okay and we're in the clear, right? No one's ever known. No one's ever found out. I never did do that. I never had a fair. I never did any of that. But we're not okay if we've lusted in our hearts and our minds. We've already, we've already committed sin according to God. And that's just, that's just not true. We're not okay. See, what happens in our mind and in our hearts is just as serious. It's just as damaging and just as much a sin as in any outward act to God. It's just, it's the same to God. What Paul, God's word, is calling us to do is it's calling us for more. A higher standard to sexual purity in everything. See, God really does care about where the affections and the attention of our heart and mind lie. He cares about what's happening in our mind and our hearts. He cares about what we think about. He cares about what's inside. And what Paul goes on to to tell us is that since we know God, remember, speaking to believers, speaking to Christians, since we know God, we're to, verse 4, possess our vessel for sanctification and honor, Or, in the New Living Translation, it says, controlling our own body to live in holiness and honor. So what he's saying is, because we know God, we're to have the self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit to possess our body for sanctification and honor and holiness rather than sexual immorality. Again, the subject is not new to the New Testament. Uh, the same thing was happening in Corinth. Paul wrote, you know, First and Second Corinthians letters to the, to the Corinthians church. Uh, the first letter, uh, the majority of it, the reasons why the book was written is because they too lived in an incredibly sexually charged city and culture. Corinth was rampant for that. They worshipped religious deities uh, that, that, that were sexual deities. Um, it was tied in with their life and their religion. I mean, it was... It was rampant in that city. And Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, speaking to them. Paul speaking to Christians. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. Therefore, because of that truth, glorify God in your body. You know, so many times we, we, we maybe memorize this, you know this verse on the temple of the Holy Spirit, but this is in reference, this is in context to sexual immorality. It applies to everything, right? We've been bought with a price, right? The price being Christ. God sent his only son to die for us so that we could have life in that abundantly, amen? We've been bought with a price. The price was high. It was God's son. Because of that truth, we're to, we should glorify God in all that we do. And that's right. But in context, Paul is speaking to sexual immorality. And he's saying, your bodies are not to be a temple or, or to be a vessel used for sexual sin, but rather for sexual purity to glorify God with. Are you guys seeing where Paul's, what Paul's trying to do? He's speaking to Christians, reminding them of how they ought to live due to the fact that they're born again, that they're set free, they're saved, redeemed, etc. Like Romans uh, 10, 9 and 10 says, we've confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in our heart that God raised us from the dead. We're saved. If, that, if that's us, he's speaking to, to, the, to Christians. Everything about our lives are to be different. Everything about our lives are to be different. And sex involves and plays a part of much of our lives, especially in this day and age. Especially right now, 2000. I mean, this is, this is so relevant for us. What Paul's doing is he's confronting the fact that that we as believers already know the truth. And in a lot of ways, we're obeying it. And it's good. And we're living it out. But when it comes to our sanctification, specifically our sexual purity, that we are to excel more and have every aspect of that part of our lives lived out in a way that pleases and glorifies the Lord. That's what Paul's getting at. He's honing in specifically on one part of sanctification because he, he knows and realizes how big a deal it is in the culture of the day. Again, Paul spoke to the church in Colossae uh, in Colossians chapter three in the same way. He says this to them. Therefore, because if you have been raised up with Christ, if you know Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Because we know Christ, our lives are to be different, and we're to keep seeking the things above. Amen? And Paul continues to go on in this text. And it gets even a bit harder. Because he brings up the repercussions and the tangible consequences that come from sexual sin. And he specifically talks here of a man that is committing adultery or fornication with a woman. And what he does is he brings up that not only does the sexual sin hurt uh, himself and the parties involved, the woman, but also that woman, that girl, has a dad or, or possibly a husband that he's sinning against as well. And it can be flip-flop, woman and man. And, but, but every person 
that we commit sexual sin with or to has family members that we're sinning against as well. That's Paul's point. I know, it's not fun, it's not easy. That's Paul's point. And sometimes, when you're in sexual sin, you might not care or might not know, but but some cases, the temporal consequences can be absolutely devastating to sexual sin. We all know this. We might not have personally known this. Maybe some of you have. Understand that. But sexual sin, impurity, and immorality affects more than just ourselves or even the other party. Sexual sin can, has, and will ruin marriages, rips apart families, it damages kids. It's horrible. You know, I, I would say, you know, we're going to talk all about this. God, God, God will forgive you in a moment. God will wipe you as white as snow. But man, when it comes to sexual sin, it just seems like the, the temporal consequences that you have to live with here and now are just so bad. They're just, they're, just, they're just so heavy and they're so hard and they're so gnarly. God's able to sustain and he's bigger than all that. And we're going to get to that in a second. We're going to get to the beauty of the gospel. But Paul is just reminding them that, hey, when you're sinning, you're not only sinning against yourself and the other person, but there's, there's other people involved. And even lust or pornography can have tangible effects. You know, it, it really can uh, injure, damage future marriages, how you treat the opposite sex. I mean, uh, spend some time on the prayer team, you'll realize this. People that struggled with pornography for years, but they've been set free, now they're married and it's all good, they're still struggling with stuff. Tangible consequences. God's bigger and he's able to heal and restore and set free and redeem and all that. God's able to do that. There's a good part to this sermon too. Not a good part, you know what I mean. God's bigger than all that. But there's tangible consequences to, to sexual sin. And sin, specifically sexual sin, does not happen in a vacuum or is isolated to just us. It hurts others around us, dishonors God, and, and truly what Paul's getting at is we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. It's, 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 it's what it is. Most importantly, how Paul kind of finishes this, t- this section of text is that re- regardless if we, we think we hurt someone, if we do hurt someone, regardless if we think even what we're doing is bad or not, all sin, specifically sexual sin, all sin is against God first and foremost. We sin against God first and foremost anytime we uh, participate in sexual sin. King David, you know, a man after God's own heart, a worshiper, a worship leader, a warrior. I mean, King David. You guys all know the story, but King David saw Bathsheba bathing. First, it was lust, but then lust took form into action. He committed adultery. He slept with her, another man's wife. He committed sexual sin, hurting, obviously, all parties involved. What happened was, is though, that, that, that David got to the place where he was so broken over his sin. And he came to that spot where he really grasped the weight and significance of what he had done. That he cried out to the Lord. And we actually have this recorded in Psalm 51. This, this, this prayer, this, and it's so good, the whole thing, but I'm going to just read you the first four verses of Psalm 51. This is, this is David before God just after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. David's saying, have mercy on me, O God. 
Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. He got it. And that was the first step for him to be restored and to be forgiven and and to be renewed. And depending where you're at, well, either way, this is hard and this is heavy. This is heavy stuff. I understand that for many of you, maybe it struck a chord. Uh, It's been hard to hear. It stirs up a lot of emotions. And again, it just depends on where you're at and what you're doing and what you have done. And before we get any further, if you're feeling condemnation or shame, that isn't from Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're feeling conviction, it's because the Holy Spirit is doing it. It's because God loves you and his loving kindness is wanting to lead you to repentance. But before we, you know, kind of get to this application, what do you do now with all this heavy stuff? I just want to make sure that, that you know, that I'm, I'm aware that, man, like this is, this is hard stuff because so many emotions can be going on right now. I know for me, uh, the hardest part of being a pastor is sitting in a room counseling a couple or an individual that has been devastated by sexual sin. I literally wish I never had to do another one of those meetings. It's too hard. It's too messy. Um, There's just almost nothing harder. But what we need to know this morning, in light of now knowing, you know, this is a call to holiness. This is a call to righteousness. This is a call to sanctification. We first need to know the Lord's heart in all this. That he doesn't just tell us no for no good reason. You know, he just doesn't just say abstain or cut out these things for no good reason, but he's designed us a certain way and he has purpose for it and it's perfect. And God, being God, creator, he knows what will be most joyful, most life-giving. He'll know, he'll know, he knows what, what will bring us nearest to him. And that's why he gives us his word. Obedience brings those things. When we obey God's word, we, we get to experience uh, his perfect plans and his perfect purposes. Because God is our perfect heavenly father. He gives good things. He, he gives good gifts to his kids. We've got to know, we gotta know who, we're, who we're dealing with here. Who's, who's, who's saying this to us. It's not just Paul. This is God's word. God's the one that's doing this and he has purpose and a plan for it. The next we need to know is that there's hope to have freedom from sexual sin. There's hope to, 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 to flee temptation. God's word's all about that too, right? There's no temptation that is, over, that is common to man that can overcome us, but God always gives us a way of escape. God always gives us a way out. What he also does is he gives us the helper, the Holy Spirit, God in us. The moment you're saved, remember the moment you're saved, God gives you the Holy Spirit. He's our helper, to strengthen us, that in that moment of weakness, we can call upon God and he can give us the strength to withstand that temptation. And there's, I wish I had, you know, to be honest, it needs another sermon because there's so many more practical things we can do. We can memorize scripture. When we're tempted and we're broken and we're weak and we want to fail and we want to give in, we can, we can know God's word and what it says and we can cling to it. There's also the obvious tangible stuff. Pornography. Struggle with the internet? Kill your internet. 
You can do it. You can get by. There's public places you can use your internet. This is, you kill the phone. You don't need the smartphone. You struggle with lust, just, 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 just lust in general. You know why God gives you peripheral vision? For that reason. You know something's coming, just don't turn. <laughs> peripheral vision. Per, e, e, don't turn. And again, there, there's, there's so much more that I wish I could say right now. I don't have the time. But all of us, what I do believe that God would have us do is, is to take this to heart as King David did. And I do believe that we need to come to grips with what we're doing with our vessels. Right? We need to acknowledge what, what, what's going on. Are we, are we struggling? Are we committing sexual sin? Are we in sexual immorality in any way? Remember what, what, it, what it entails. In any way. And so this morning, church, we need to surrender. We need to turn from those things. As Paul would say, you need to cut it out. We need to confess to God. We need to confess to others. We need to give up, stop, remove, break it off, whatever it takes to get to God. So here's the good news. The good news is when we repent, we actually draw near to the Lord. See, sin separates our relationship with God. It separated it, and that's why Jesus came, and now, now we're, that broken relationship is now healed and restored. But, but as a believer, if we are dabbling, living in, if we're, if we're in sin, that's going to separate you from intimacy with Christ. And when we repent, when we surrender, and we, and, we, and we cry out to the Lord just as David did, we get to experience God's grace and his love and his forgiveness and his mercy and his restoration. If you don't confess and give up and surrender and, and repent, you're not going to experience any of that because you're just going to continue to live in sin. But do you notice, even though David was broken, do you notice how he started out his prayer to the Lord? God, your unfailing love, and because of your great compassion, forgive me. This truly is that his loving kindness leads us to repentance. And I know it's a little bit of a different um, use of it, but when Peter, right after Pentecost in Acts chapter 3, right, the Holy Spirit fell upon Peter, the same guy that denied Christ. He gave this incredible sermon. 3,000 came to know the Lord, right? It's an incredible story of the Holy Spirit falling upon Peter. But Peter describes repentance. And again, again, I know this is repentance in the sake of um, salvation, but it's still talking about repentance. Look at, look at how he describes repentance. It says, Acts 3, verse 19, this is Peter speaking to the crowds. He says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I don't know, but that is so sweet to me and what I know from that, that, man, if I repent, my sins are forgiven. And not only that, but I get to be refreshed in the presence of God. And you know what Psalm 16 says about the presence of God? Psalm 16 says, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. So that's what God does. He removes shame and guilt and condemnation and he gives joy when we repent and when we confess and when we allow him to forgive us and cleanse us. Not only that, but what? Jesus did on the cross was he gave us access to the Father. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 16 says this. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, that we will receive mercy and find grace to help us when we need it most. And then as we worship now and as we pray and as we confess to the Lord, 
we can hold on to 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Amen? Amen. Let's do that as we worship now. Do not miss the value of this time being time where you can reconnect, commune, and and encounter Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that you're a God that loves us so, so much. And that, God, we just acknowledge that you really do know best. We don't know best, you do. And God, even as hard and heavy uh, for some of us this may be, we thank you, Lord, that you're a God that does not condemn us or shame us, but you're a God that is there with open arms saying, come unto me. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you, Father, and cry out just as King David did, and that you will forgive us and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Thank you, God, that you have so much more in store for us. Thank you that you you continually want us to grow more and more into your image. So we ask that you'd start that now, Father God. Start that in us right now. Pray that we would not miss out on encountering the one true living God. We ask, just as Peter talked about, we, we, we ask, Lord, that we would experience times of refreshing in your presence right now, Lord. We need to be healed. We need to be set free. We need to be forgiven. We need to be made right this morning. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd have your way in us. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.